Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. It's not every day that we have a guest on the show quite like this one. Little do you know, there are two previous guests of Abstract who are actually lifelong friends of today's guest. It's going to be a mystery as to who those are, and we might let you know who they are at the end of the episode. Without further ado, let us bring Joseph Inhaber onto the show. Joe, tell us about yourself. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. I'm currently a graduate student in clinical psychology at the University of Ottawa. And my research is all about the situational precursors and consequences of this thing called moral injury. Basically, I'm interested in learning about the types of things capable of violating a person's sense of proper ethical conduct and what might happen as a consequence of that. And I'm also hoping to learn more about the psychological experience of people who are unfortunately subject to this type of trauma. My hope is that in doing this research, I'll be able to meaningfully contribute to the development of prevention and intervention strategies for people who are suffering. So that's kind of like the professional stuff. And then in my spare time, I like to rock climb. I like to sing rock songs in my car. Um, I like playing in the woods. I love science. I love psychology. I love statistics. I love stuff like that. You're just a loving guy. I try. Joseph, <laughs> it, is, it is really such a pleasure to have you on the show. So welcome and thank you for being here. Thanks, Jeremy. What, a, what an absolute treat. So you dropped a very interesting term that I had not actually heard about before speaking with you initially, and this is the concept of moral injury. Yes. Okay. So what I want you to do first for me is just define what that is, and we're going to take it from there. Okay. So moral injury, you can think of it as a type of trauma, but basically what moral injury is, is the psychological condition that happens when people are a part of something or they're exposed to something, some kind of event or situation that, that really violates their deeply held sense of, of morality and, and ethical conduct. So you can imagine in the military, for example, having to, to kill an enemy combatant. And on the one hand, people might say that isn't really a moral issue. But on the other hand, people might be confronted with humanity of having to do something like that. You know, the, the shared humanity of having to actually take a life, um, what it means to be human, what it means to have killed. And so this is kind of like a simple example. There are much more complicated ones that we can get into later, but essentially it's that. It's what are the consequences of being exposed to an event that just rattles your, your ethical core. Right. So moral injury, quite literally experiencing something that like damages or interrupts these, these, these moral foundations or beliefs. That's, that's exactly it. So this is kind of crazy, though, that, that there are these real psychological implications of having specific beliefs. Like beliefs are very abstract. It's hard to see how they even have like physical manifestations in life. But what you're apparently studying is real effects, psychological effects mm -hmm. of interactions with our beliefs and events that happen in the world. That's kind of nuts. Yeah. I mean, when you think of it, so the word that came to mind when you were describing that is inner conflict, or if you want to get a little bit more psyche, uh, dissonance. So what happens when you have a set of beliefs that tell you XYZ is the proper way to be. And then you have this event that goes totally counter to that. In, in your mind, how do you kind of rectify the two situations and say, well, I believe this, but this is what I did. Or I believe this, but this is what I saw. 
in my mind and based on the literature, what, what I've come to believe is that, you know, we hold these sets of beliefs pertaining to ethics and morality and, and proper conduct, you know, what we believe to be being a good person. But there are things that can happen in life that challenge those beliefs. And it could be because of something that, you know, I've done. So I've killed, I made a mistake and somebody got really hurt, things like that. Or it, be, it could be the result of something that I saw. So for example, um, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't do anything and this did, maybe didn't even happen to me, but somebody that I'm close to did something that's so ethically troublesome that I just can't remedy it. It's just, it's contrary to the way that I used to see the world. Yeah, that's a very interesting dichotomy where you have differential effects as either the perpetrator or as the observer of some kind of event. Is this a factor that comes into your research? That's actually the root of my first study for my, for my dissertation, yeah. So, you know, it's evolved quite a bit since I started. But, you know, the idea, for, for me at least, is are there differences in the psychological impact of events that are perpetrated by the self? So meaning like I actually did this thing versus the events that I was exposed to because of the actions of others. And I do think that there are important differences. And I think that these differences are actually going to influence not only how we conceptualize this condition, but also how we treat and prevent it. So in terms of moral injury, then, can we become morally injured if we are ourselves the perpetrators? Because when you initially mentioned it, it sounded like moral injury occurred when you witnessed something that, went, that, that violated your beliefs. Or can you actually self-inflict moral injury? So it's, it's a good question. The word that we like to use, the, the jargon, so to speak, is exposed, when you were exposed to an event. Sure. Um, so that implies that it could be that you perpetrate it or that you witness it. You know, with acts of perpetration, it gets so muddy because you can, let's say, score high on trait psychopathy and you can do something that is ethically awful and maybe it won't impact you. And maybe there's all kinds of other traits that are going to make it such that, you know, there isn't really a big impact of my own ethical transgressions. But for somebody else that maybe doesn't score high in psychopathy or, you know, is just predisposed to this kind of conflict and and inner grief, the same event could elicit these, these types of symptoms. So it, it sounds like it would be important to identify these predispositions, let's say in, in a relationship between a clinician and their patient. If someone is more liable to suffer from some sort of moral injury, that's, that's kind of like a, I don't want to say a weak point, but like a soft spot in the psyche, if we could if I can use that terminology. Yeah, I mean, so the, the word that we like to throw around is the, think about like the diathesis stress model. It basically says for all kinds of psychopathology, so mental health issues, everybody has a certain level of predisposition. Right? Sure. And then that interacts with our environment. So let's say that for moral injury, somebody's level of predisposition is medium. Then they would need another medium kind of environmental situation to actually cause the moral injury, where somebody else might be lowly predisposed to moral injury. And so they need quite the shock to the system in order to kind of create the symptoms that we come to know as moral injury. So in terms of environment, can the environment constitute something internal? And what I mean by that is, can I actually think a thought so vividly that is something extremely amoral that I can actually inflict moral injury upon myself just by thinking it. For example, mm -hmm. let's say someone who comes to a point in their life 
where they actually contemplate committing suicide. Can a thought like that be so, just the thought, be so traumatic as to cause something like moral injury? You know, it's a good question. The reason that I hesitate, and it's actually the reason I love this topic so much is, or not the only, but one of them is, we know so little about moral injury. And it's something that I wanted to dive more into with you because other types of pathology, for example, OCD, PTSD, which kind of, I, I said OCD because you hinted at like this kind of belief that really kind of triggers a response out of you. Those kinds of things can happen with obsessive compulsive disorder. But moral injury is much less well-known. We don't even have a comprehensive set of symptoms. Right now, it's, I mean, it's only been studied for the last, I'll say more seriously studied for the last uh, 11-ish years. Mm -hmm. And so a part of it comes down to, are we willing to include intense immoral beliefs as being potentially morally injurious? And that isn't something that researchers have really decided on yet because we don't know enough about the condition. That's totally fair. <laughs> Sometimes I just got to ask the question just it's, in case. It's an interesting <laughs> question, and it's one that I hope that we'll answer in the next five to ten years. Sure. Well, so if, if moral injury is a concept that's only really been, like you said, well-studied for a decade, there are probably many, many, many more questions that have not yet been answered or many things that have not even been defined yet mm -hmm. under the purview of moral injury. That's great. And I'm glad we're talking about it now because this will kind of be like, not ground zero, but ground 10 for something that may continue deep into the future. Yeah. You did say that you want to get deeper into moral injury. Is there some other side of moral injury that we haven't yet touched upon? I think so. So uh, there's a story about moral injury that, that I've, I mean, I've built it in my own mind and I, I think that I'm on the right track. I think that I've compiled a, a narrative that makes sense. And I think that it can help people kind of like digest this topic. Okay, let's hear it. You know, when I talk about moral injury with even my colleagues who are all studying clinical psychology, a lot of them say, well, isn't that just PTSD? And the answer to that, from my perspective, is no. We think of PTSD as a fear-based condition, and consequently, the kind of treatments that we look at are rooted in fear circuitry, extinction, all that like conditioning kind of stuff. With moral injury, and here's why I find it so interesting it's not conceptualized as a fear-based disorder. So it isn't this anxiety, this like this fear that something bad's going to happen to me and that I might be killed or that somebody that I love might be killed. Moral injury, as the word would imply, it's this guilt and shame-based disorder about something that somebody's done or this anger and, you know, I'm so mad at the world for, for the fact that this can happen kind of thing. So for me, that's the big difference between PTSD and moral injury. And the reason I find that important is because, you know, one of the best samples to study PTSD in is military samples, just because they're exposed to these types of life-threatening events way more often than the general public, just by nature of their job. And so with PTSD, we've developed treatments that work pretty well. It's, it's honestly impressive. It, as a person that studies psychology, I'm blown away by how effective these treatments are. We, we really understand PTSD and how to treat it, and that's cool. But in military samples, the efficacy rates for these treatments, they just aren't as good. And there's a lot of people, a lot of veterans that come in for treatment for PTSD, and it doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. And so th the question that got me really keen on moral injury is, well, well, why? Why is this treatment that works really good in the general public not working for these veterans and soldiers? 
I think that the answer is that, you know, for these treatments that we're using for for these soldiers, it's all based on fear circuitry and, and kind of unlearning these fear responses. And that helps a lot of people. But what happens if your trauma isn't fear-based and it's moral-based? You know, on the battlefield or on the war zone, there's all kinds of things that people are exposed to that from a moral perspective, they just keep you up at night. Like they're, they're really awful. And we can get into some of those stories later on. But if you are haunted by the moral failure of somebody that you respect or the, the moral failure of humanity or even your own moral failings, then this kind of like fear-based treatment isn't really going to address the problem that you're suffering from. So there's this distinction you're creating then between things that are fearful and things that go against our morals. Are you implying that we have more of one over the other, depending on whether we're a civilian versus someone who is in the field? No, I'm not implying that we have more than one or the other, depending on our occupation, let's say. What I am implying is that if you're a soldier, the likelihood of exposure to these types of events, fear-based and moral-based, Mm-hmm. It's just much more elevated. The, the nature of the work is just so intense um, okay. and so consequential. That's the right word. There are, there are consequences to the actions that military service people have to make. Whereas if you're an everyday civilian, of course, you can be exposed to moral trauma. Of course, you can be exposed to life threat trauma. Car accidents happen all the time. People do moral failures all the time. But the regularity that it occurs is much less frequent, right? Okay, so for, for an individual living in regular society, they might hear about someone who gets into a car crash. They might even themselves experience that. But that's not something that happens on a daily basis. They don't wake up every morning and look out their bedroom window and see car crashes. Exactly. This is the distinction we're making here. Es- essentially, yeah. Okay, right. So the, the lifestyle then of a, of a military personnel is, in some circumstances, an extreme one in terms of exposure. To use your word. I, I wouldn't just call it the lifestyle. I would call it the occupational. It's almost an occupational hazard. It's like, sure. what are you going out there to do? You're out there to, to serve in some meaningful way. I think that's why a lot of these people do it. And you know, a lot of them do heroes work. But the consequences, you're just exposed to, in some sense, the best of humanity. You know, What gets a person to want to go out and join this occupation, be a military service person, put your life on the line? But on the other hand, you're also exposed to the worst of humanity you see things that are just grotesque. And those are the kinds of things that I think can trigger a moral injury. And I think that they can happen in the everyday context as well. So civilian, it's just much less studied. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've already touched on this idea of different therapies for which can be very efficacious uh, for PTSD. How do therapies, if there even are any that are currently developed for moral injury, how do those differ from the, the current well-developed and implemented therapies for PTSD? That's a great question. I, I want to preface by saying I'm not an expert in this, but I do have an idea. Okay. Um, so, so we'll keep it broad. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep it broad. So let's imagine for a second, you know, God forbid, you're in a car crash and you're okay, but maybe you could have died. That's the kind of thing that could elicit PTSD. So you might have flashbacks, you might have nightmares, you might be really scared of cars, that would be reasonable to expect. And you might also have like, you know, an exaggerated startle response, so you get scared more easily, you're a little bit more jumpy and on edge, things like that. 
And every single time that you see something that reminds you of the accident, it might make you feel scared, nervous, and you kind of get these like PTSD episodes that we think of, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were to go see a psychologist and you were to get treatment, odds are it would be based on some kind of exposure. You know, with, with PTSD, oftentimes part of the issue is that people don't have a perfect memory of the trauma. It happened to them. If you ask them details, they can't really recall. And for this reason, whenever they see something that reminds them of it, it's like it's happening all over again because they haven't properly processed this event. So in therapy, often what we do, we, we do this kind of like um, rebuilding of the memory. You know, if I was the clinician, I might say something like, take me through what happened. Let's, let's build the memory so that you know exactly what happened. And you know that, you know, things that are in your environment every day aren't going to trigger like a kind of PTSD kind of response. So that that's PTSD. And so that's kind of like working on the fear, exposing yourself to the fear, imaginal exposure, we call it. So you're diving into the memory by talking about it. Sure. Now imagine that you're suffering from moral injury. And let's just say, for example, this is a, this is a true story. There was a soldier, he was a sniper and he was deployed in some war-torn country. And his team came under fire from an enemy sniper. And so this guy's job was to find the enemy sniper and eliminate the threat. Otherwise, his entire team was at risk of death. Mm -hmm. So he looks for higher ground, he finds a higher ground, and he finds the enemy sniper through a scope. And when he's looking at the enemy sniper, the enemy sniper is firing at his friends and he has an infant strapped to his chest. So if you were to shoot the guy on the tower that's shooting at your friends, there's a strong chance that, you know, he falls to his knees, collapses, crushes the baby, and you're at least in part responsible for that. Or you might perceive that you're responsible for, for that death. Mm -hmm. Right. So now imagine that you're in therapy and the therapist tells you, okay, take me back to what happened. Take me back to this event that made you feel incredibly guilty and incredibly ashamed and incredibly angry at the world. And I just want you to, you know, really understand what happened. I want you to really work through every single detail so that it doesn't scare you anymore. But it's not scary. It's difficult. And so, once again, I'm not an expert on these treatments, but that's kind of my understanding of why we have this difficulty in treating veterans and soldiers with PTSD. Because some of them might have the fear-based PTSD for sure. But if others are suffering from a moral injury where they just find it difficult to rectify what they've done or what they've seen, then reliving it in this manner isn't going to be helpful for them. Is it fair to call moral injury like PTSD light? Or is that a misattribution? I would say it's a misattribution, but I, but I do think it's fair to say it is a post-traumatic stress disorder. I just wouldn't call it light. So Okay. So PTSD actually does encompass, right? Because the D stands for disorder. It, it is an umbrella term that, that captures multiple disorders, one of which is what we come, have come to know as PTSD. Mm -hmm. But you're saying moral injury also fits under that umbrella. Um, I'm saying that it, it might. You know, one of the things that I actually appreciate about the field is they're very wary to put the label of disorder on moral injury. So if you've noticed throughout our conversation, I've been referring to it as a condition, mm -hmm. not a disorder. And the reason that I'm doing that is because 
we don't want to pathologize everything. We don't want to say everything's a disorder, and especially something as human as moral conflict. We don't necessarily want to call that a disorder unless there's clear evidence that it's really impacting people's lives above and beyond what we would expect. So when I say that it certainly resembles PTSD, what I really mean is there's some kind of trauma. This is a post-trauma response. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a disorder or a condition is up to researchers, and hopefully we'll figure that over the next five to ten years. Uh, but I would assume there's a lot of semantics in this field. Yeah, there's a lot of semantics. In psychology in general, coming from it as well, I know you really got to dance around different terminology because sometimes it's uh, the same word, the same concept is defined slightly differently by different people. Yeah. And I know just from experience reading about different case studies in abnormal psychology, you can have a particular disorder, call it that, where there are a number of criteria, only a few of which you must meet to be labeled with that disorder. And so if there are six criteria and you need three, you could have two different individuals who present with the same disorder who have completely different... Presentations. What would the word be? Presentations, exactly. And so... At least to an outsider, that looks kind of wishy-washy. And that's exactly, in, in my view, at least that's exactly what's happening with PTSD. So in the DSM, which is like the, the big book, the big diagnostic book that psychologists use, we have PTSD. And in the newer editions, we've included things like guilt and shame and anger. I th- I'm pretty sure anger's in there, but definitely guilt is in there. And it wasn't before. Interesting. And it's like, well, why is guilt in there? Like, why is guilt in there? Oh, it's because so many of these people that have PTSD feel guilt. That's interesting. Why do they feel guilt? What is it about the event? There's this paper that I love, mm-hmm. and it's called Moral Injury and PTSD. Um, I'm going to butcher this. Mechanically different, yet often co-occurring. And what that means is, is that one event, one trauma can trigger PTSD, fear, and a moral injury, guilt, shame, anger. That said, they could be mutually exclusive. And what this paper showed, which I find really interesting, is the actual kind of what's happening in your brain when you're morally injured versus suffering from PTSD. It's different parts of the brain that are lighting up. So it's not the same disorder. But in the DSM, we've included moral injury symptoms in the definition of PTSD because we see them so often in people that are suffering from PTSD. It's messy. It's, it's, it's still very messy. It's super messy. Yeah. It's so super it's definitely an interesting field to be jumping into as a as a fresh PhD student because <laughs> this this can open up a whole world of possibility. But I would imagine that it it would be tricky. When I first started my masters, I wanted to research the psychology of humor, hmm. and the field was so messy. I I actually just gave up. Hmm. I just said I'm gonna. I'm going to change. I'm going to switch over to a field that's got a little bit more of a solid foundation of concepts and principles and beliefs so I could hang on to something. It was a totally like the humor research was, 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 it was neither here nor there. It was all over the place. So good for you for, for going into a field that's still in its infancy and trying to make sense of it. I think that's awesome. Thank you. Well, I mean, you know, the, the thing about it, and I felt the same way, I'm going to be honest, when I started my PhD, I wanted to study social anxiety. I did that in my undergraduate degree and I really enjoyed it. I, I felt like I understood the disorder and I felt like there were things that I could learn about it and contribute in that way. And my supervisor, she actually challenged me in a really nice way. She said, you know, you don't have to do moral injury, but think about it. And I thought about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I said, oh God, this thing sounds messy and hard. And then I just jumped in and it was the, <laughs> it was the best thing I ever did. 
Not for everybody. That's, <laughs> oh, that's awesome to hear. That's the best thing you ever did. That's, it, that's huge. From, from an academic perspective, it was the best thing I ever did. Okay. <laughs> Let's qualify it as such. Yeah. I have to ask, because when we first spoke, you mentioned this really interesting sounding therapy known as EMDR. Mm-hmm. I must have you sure. explain sure. once again to me and the listeners. Once again, I want to preface this. Is it preface or preface? I think it's preface. 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 Um, I always get that wrong. I want to preface I'm not an expert in the treatments for these types of disorders. I have a firm interest, and so I've read about them on my own time. I will learn about them throughout my degree, but this isn't like an expert opinion. This is just somebody that has an interest. So full disclosure. Okay, so EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And it was discovered by a psychologist who was dealing with her own trauma of sorts. And what she did was she, she was she would go for walks. And when she would go for walks, she would speak to her friend about the trauma that she was experiencing. And she noticed that as she would do so, it became less emotionally charged. It was less like scary for her. It was less frightening to talk about. It didn't, you know, you know when you when you think of something scary and your body just kind of goes like, ooh. <laughs> that that in a sense, yeah. That kind of stopped, or at least it calmed down quite a bit. And okay. so the realization was is that when you walk, just regular walking, your eyes dart back and forth, left and right, without you even realizing it. And she was privy to this somehow. And so she thought that if she could have clients that were suffering from PTSD sit down in a chair and recount their trauma while following the psychologist that would move their fingers from left to right. And so, you know, the person would just follow the finger, left, right, left, right, with their eyes, while telling the therapist about this traumatic experience that it would actually help to uncouple the negative emotion from the memory and that's exactly what it does or at least based on my understanding that's what it does when your eyes move back and forth as you remember a certain kind of event it helps to uncouple the emotional salience from the trauma and it's, it's interesting because there's a similar thing that happens in REM sleep which stands for rapid eye movement sleep um, mm. when you were in REM that's kind of the time where our emotions decouple from our memories, which is super therapeutic, which is why sleep is super important. Everyone should go to bed. Uh, <laughs> Gotta love REM. Yeah. That, that's a crazy... Uh, yeah, I, I never actually thought about the relationship there between... Well, that's what's REM. happening. Yeah, I mean, it, wow. it stands for rapid eye movement sleep, and literally it's because your eyes are just darting around. That, that's kind of the shtick on, on EMDR. That's very cool. It does sound a lot like hypnosis. Like picture that, you know, like the classic pendulum swinging back and forth. You are becoming very sleepy. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously the, the point here is not to fall asleep. It's actually to recount. So it is much more of an actively engaged sort of therapy. Yeah. The, the idea is that is you relive the trauma, so to speak, by talking about it. While you're talking about it, you're engaged in this kind of activity that's going to help to literally detach all that fear and anxiety and, and stress from this event. So that hopefully, at some point, you're never going to forget what happened to you. But when you think about it, or when you see something that reminds you of it, it's not going to create this, you know, this intense fear and panic that, that might be happening to people. Mm-hmm. But yes, it does sound a lot like hypnosis. It's, it's just not, but it sounds a lot like it. <laughs> sure, it's okay. You are definitely going, trained to be a psychologist, not a hypnotist. That's just, again, on the record. On the record. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a big believer in, like, personal growth no matter the circumstances and there i I believe there there is 
some research, there at least exists this notion of post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. So we have post-traumatic stress and then the potential for post-traumatic growth, which could potentially be some of the greatest growth that an individual undergoes because there's there's a, a huge driving force behind it. You know, uh, one, one example that's salient for me here is there are numerous stories of people who become extremely successful in spite of the circumstances they grew up in. Mm -hmm. They were potentially very poor with, with very few opportunities. Maybe they were told by a parent or a role model that they would amount to nothing. And they took that. And these sort of traumatic things they experienced ended up fueling a fire for post-traumatic growth. Right. What is your experience with post-traumatic growth? We don't need to get too personal here, but how do you characterize it and how does that relate to the disorder itself? Let's move away from the moral stuff for just a, a quick second. Just think about somebody who's in a car crash. It's like the classic example and is terrified to get back in their car. Well, that's a really difficult experience for anybody to go through. And if you suffer from PTSD as a result, that's understandable. And the work that you have to put in to be able to get back to a place where you can get in a car and drive and not have it impact you in the same way. I mean, that's amazing. Like the, the amount of like, the amount of discomfort that you have to tolerate as a human being and the amount of drive that you have to use to just push yourself to get better. I mean, I, I think that that's inspiring and that's a, as good of a definition of growth as I can think of. Just that, that pushing yourself to, to, get back to where you were following something awful. Mm -hmm. I really like that answer, actually. Again, my previous conception of growth was you start at some, some level of being. This trauma knocks you down, and then you just skyrocket past where you initially <laughs> were. The trauma has now empowered me to become better and X, Y, Z. However, I do appreciate just in the way that you were describing this growth as growth through the return to normalcy, like growth through counteracting or, or climbing out of whatever hole you've been put into it. It does, it does take energy. If we even just think of gravity, you know, to climb mm -hmm. upwards away from some surface requires energy to kind of escape gravity's pull. And if you're being pushed down, the further down you go, the stronger the pull is. I love the way that you put that. I'm going to use that if you don't mind. Just that like that kind of metaphor of being put in a hole and having to climb back up. Yeah. Think about an, an incredible challenge. Say, say something like you don't think you can ever do, like you're going to plank for five minutes, which is something that you challenged me to do. I did. So, you know, let's say that I can comfortably plank for a minute and a half for argument's sake. I can do it. So now you're putting me in a hole, so to speak, because now my one minute and a half isn't good enough. Now it has to be five minutes. Well, all of a sudden, I have to look up at five minutes and say, what do I have to do to get me to where I need to go? If you think of trauma as a similar thing, it's like, well, I was here. All of a sudden, I'm down, I'm down here and I have to go back up. What do I have to do to get myself back up there? And I think that if you dig deep and find you know, what you need to do to push yourself forward, that's, that's post-traumatic growth, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Amazing. Okay. I'm thoroughly satisfied with that. Answer. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I just want to close off with a, a few more personal questions. Sure. And this, is, this, this has been great. You once said that if you can tolerate suffering, you can do anything. I said that to you? You did. That sounds like me. <laughs> How do you find meaning in suffering? A la Viktor Frankl. 
Hmm. I love the question. Uh, I feel like you're speaking to my soul. (laughs) You know, here's what I think. I think that suffering is inevitable. I think that there is suffering in life and you're almost fooling yourself if you think you can avoid it. That said, if you confront the suffering and you embrace it and you bring it upon yourself, then all of a sudden you, you just become more equipped to handle it when it happens unexpectedly. You know what you have to do. You, you, you become the kind of person that's able to push past suffering. And I think that if you can do that, you can do anything. <laughs> awesome. In the words of Ryan Holiday, the obstacle is the way. Absolutely. But, but you, have to, you have to find obstacles rather than let them appear. You have to seek them out. Interesting. Okay. Really, that's my philosophy. I guess if you can construct your own suffering, then the challenge is more easily surmountable, in a sense. Because you've, you've created this parameter of control, okay. which may or may not be a good thing, right? But well, I mean, TBD. I mean, think about, look, I hate running. I hate it so much. And it hurts like hell. And when I started grad school, I, and I, I'm still very scared, but like, it's scary. Like, you have to create a thesis. You have to become a researcher. Like, what do I know? I'm just like a kid. <laughs> and all those fears, they bubble up and they're very real. And, and some days I find it more tolerable than others. But if I ran that day and it hurt and I pushed and I said, I don't care, I'm doing this. And I get home and I, and I hit my target or whatever and I get in the shower Nothing scary anymore because I already did something that hurt like hell. So, <laughs> manufacturing the perspective on a daily basis. I try to. Yeah, if if it works for you, then it might work for others. I hope so. So that's awesome. You describe yourself as obsessive, compulsive, and functional. Mm. Could you just quickly walk me through a day in the life of Joe and Haber? Like, what's that like? Oh, okay. Um, let's say I wake up in the morning and. I've been taking rest more seriously, like physical rest, because I feel like I haven't gotten enough. But let's say I'm not resting. And I I tell myself, like, today, we'll go with the running example. Today, you're going for a run. Well, I can't do anything until I've ran, because I will not stop thinking about running. And if I tried to push it out of the way, I'll just say you're avoiding this. You're you're avoiding this barrier (laughs) that you're putting up in front of you. So I, I just can't not do it. So I get it and I run. The, the compulsive side of that, so to speak, is that I actually do the behavior. I obsess about it until I compulse, we'll call it the compulsion, the, the running. Uh-huh. The reason that I like to use the word functional is because I like to think that the behaviors that I'm choosing to obsess about and actually perform compulsively are ones that are going to help me in my life. So, you know, uh-huh. a lot of like work stuff, I obsess, and I obsess about my work. A lot of physical activity stuff because I think it's really important to be healthy. So, you know, you have to be careful. And this is thing that you and I have spoken about in previous discussions. Like, yeah, obsessions and compulsions can be functional. But you have to be careful that you don't take them so far that they end up hurting you. Mm-hmm. For example, I've obsessed so hard about physical activity that I've, like, I've broken my body and I can't get up for a week. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's a fine line. And I, I think that you and I have spoken about this enough to know that it's one that we both dance with. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I, I do like the juxtaposition of obsession compulsion and then functionality i I think it's i I think it's a beautiful chaos it's definitely a beautiful chaos (laughs) (laughs) yeah you definitely make order out of chaos 
Finally, what is the one most important quality you think someone needs in order to succeed in grad school? I think you just have to care. I know it sounds like cliche or whatever, but like just care about what you do. I mean, grad school is very hard. Like, I love it. I, I really love it. It's the, it's the best decision I made from like an education and career perspective. Like, I get to study things that I find interesting. Like, how awesome is that? But it's a big grind. And you're not on your own, but you're on your own. You're, you're sitting down with your laptop. You're, you're reading. You're learning. You're trying to develop questions. You're thinking about how to answer these questions using you know, statistics. Like, what is that? Like, it's, it's like, it's, it's so crazy and it's so challenging. And if you don't care, I think it's just, it's just not going to work out. I think you have to love what you do and, and otherwise, you know, do something else. I'm just going to call you out there. You added, you have to love what you do. That's a, that's, that's two different qualities. <laughs> we said one quality. Well, I'm not going to edit it out, but just so we know, well, we're sticking with caring. I said care. Caring. Yeah, I said, care. I said care yeah. and I, I had to elaborate, yeah. but you're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's okay. You just got a lot of love to give, whether it's to people or to your research, whatever it is. <laughs> I can feel it. I can feel it. That's awesome. Joe, what can I say? What an absolute pleasure. Such a cool, cool topic. Really, obviously, just an absolute pleasure chatting with you on this on air and getting it down for the world to hear. So thank you so much for being here. What a, what a treat. It was great, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Oh, oh, real fast. Uh -huh. You mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast. Shout out to Sam and Jamie. They are my two lifelong friends. That were also on the podcast. So, hello, yes. hello, Sam. Jamie Snight, episode eighteen, autobiographical memory, and Sam Shulman, episode thirty-two, mass timber and bioengineering. Anyhow, episode thirty-two. They're amazing. Listen to the podcast. They're smart people. <laughs> they are. At some point, I will be releasing a trifecta of the three boys. So keep your eyes peeled yes. when that happens. Yes. Okay. All right, Joe. That's it. That's all. Have a great afternoon. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.